Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Movements Podcast. This is the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today, I'm talking to David Garrison about his new book, A Wind in the House of Islam. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, uh, it's good to be with you today, David. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of thinking back to when uh, I first became aware of you. I think it was when I picked up a copy of your book on church planting movements about 10 years ago. Yeah, it seems like uh, two lifetimes ago sometimes. It was yeah. only 10 years ago. And, well, that book has had a, a huge impact around the world in a number of languages. It sort of, I guess, set the, the tone or made people aware of a dynamic that's always existed, but the dynamic of church planting movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, we were always involved in, in evangelism that results in churches. That was sort of the mantra of the uh, Southern Baptist uh, mission work around the world. And it really was not so much our invention or desire to pursue church planting movements as it was uh, you know, God's revelation of them to us. So when mm. we started seeing these churches multiply uh, from one and two to ten and twenty and then hundreds, uh, you, just, you just have to sit up and take notice. And we did. And we, we, we examined it in light of Scripture to see if this was biblical. And uh, finding that it was, it became a, the passion uh, for many of us uh, to pursue this, to learn the ways that God was at work in these movements, what made them different, and then to try to align ourselves with the ways that God was at work in these movements so that we could hopefully uh, advance the kingdom. Because uh, nothing on earth that we've seen so rapidly uh, multiplies new believers, new disciples, of Jesus Christ than uh, the exponential multiplication of uh, churches. Mm. So this is a reality that we see in Scripture and in history and around the world. And I think what you've done is sort of draw the principles out and ask the question, not how can we cause this to happen, Mm -hmm. but rather this is what God does. How can we partner with him and his purposes in the world? Absolutely. Uh, any uh, any hint that this is somehow mechanical or that we can manipulate it into existence, I think, is a misunderstanding. Uh, I, I do like that illustration that uh, Rick Warren has given, that uh, you see these surfers riding surfboards on the, the big waves uh, out on the California coast. He said, you know, they could do nothing to make those waves. They can't make them a one inch higher, one inch lower. But if they work hard, they can learn to align their board, they can align their weight and their balance on those boards so that they can ride those waves and maximize the experience of participating in something that really only God can do, which is to Mm. make a great wave. In the same way with church planning movements, this is something that God does, but we have learned how to gum it up. Mm. We've learned how to block these things. We've learned how to fall off the board. (laughs) <laughs> We've learned how to make big mistakes and uh, actually to squelch uh, the activity of, uh, of God's redemption in these movements. And that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to be obstacles or hindrances to what God is doing and what he desires to do. 
Well, for the last few years when we've bumped into each other, you've, you've been uh, working on research of how we're seeing uh, church planting movements amongst uh, people with a Muslim background. And uh, quite exciting, the, the, the book has just been released. And um, tell me, what, what sort of motivated you to, to write this book? Well, Steve, um, you know, for, for every missionary, I suppose, for a long time, uh, Muslims have sort of been the last of the giants. Uh, they're the largest single block of, of non-Christians on earth, still growing very rapidly. In fact, over the centuries, tens of millions of Christians have been assimilated mm. into the Muslim world. And, uh, and yet there's been precious few uh, movements of Muslims in the other direction toward faith in Jesus Christ. So when we began hearing reports from various corners of the world about uh, movements, not just individuals, but movements, communities of uh, Muslims coming to faith in Christ, being baptized, uh, it, it got our attention. Uh, prior to this book, I think we had a lot of individual anecdotes and people knew what was happening in their area, but they couldn't see what was happening in other parts of the Muslim world or, or in other corners of the world. And uh, by the grace of God, I've been allowed to travel as extensively as necessary. And uh, I just wanted to know what was happening. You know, is this something that is just uh, rumors and hearsay? Is it a wish fulfillment, you know, sort of a projection of what we want to see happen? Or, or is it really taking place? And what's the nature of these conversions? Are these people uh, really encountering Christ, being born again? Uh, and so uh, I was able to travel about a quarter of a million miles uh, across the Muslim world from West Africa through North Africa, East Africa, the Arab world, uh, Turkestan, mm -hmm. uh, the Persian world, South Asia, all the way across to Indo-Malaysia and uh, gather well over a thousand interviews, uh, listening to people, letting them tell me their story of what's happened. And uh, at the end of it, I was able to get a picture of the global scope of what God is doing, that this is something that's uh, uh, it's not limited to one corner of the Muslim world. It's not just one particular ethnic group that's converting. We're seeing it literally from West Africa to Indonesia and everywhere in between. I also did a historical retrospective, Steve, mm -hmm. to find out is this unique in history or is this something that uh, you know really has been recurring off and on for the past 14 centuries. And what we discovered was that uh, what we're seeing today is quite remarkable and unprecedented historically. Some 84% of the movements that we've been able to identify at any time in church history have taken place in the last 20 years alone. In the last 20 years? In the last 20 years. Okay. And when you said you, you've interviewed, you know, about a thousand people, uh, who were those people? Were they missionaries? Were they Muslim background believers? Now, these are exclusively Muslim background believers. Now, I had missionaries and I had national mm -hmm. partners all across the world who facilitated this, made it possible, provided translation and translators. Uh, it would not have been possible without the help of wonderful, godly Christian men and women, uh, some of whom, many of whom, and perhaps even most of whom I didn't even know before going into this project. But when they learned what I was trying to do, uh, they said, look, we want to help. We want to be a part of helping the Christian world to understand that God loves Muslims, that he's saving Muslims, 
and that something special is happening in our day so that we can all be a part of it, so that we can all learn from it. Mm. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm just aware there's a lot of fear in the Christian world and in the West uh, regarding Islam. Islam, And some people are probably thinking, well, wh- why did you put all this information out there? Isn't it dangerous? Won't they try and undermine these works? Um, what, what concerns did you have regarding, you know, security or whether those fears are legitimate and, and how, to, how best to manage them? Well, I'd love to be able to tell you, Steve, that those fears are, are not legitimate. There's nothing to worry about, but that wouldn't be true. Okay. <laughs> fact is that, you know, this is a, a religion that has a, a tremendous uh, component and capacity for violence within it. And uh, conversion from Islam is a capital offense to this day. That has not changed and is not likely to change. Uh, so in my uh, third chapter in the book, I list ten critical issues. And the number one critical issue was security. I uh, was well aware of the fact that everyone who shared their story, even those who said, tell everyone our story, we mm. want them to know that Muslims are coming to Christ, that I had to, I had to think not only about them, but about their families, about those who worked with them. And so in each of these uh, nine rooms in the House mm. of Islam, we make it a point to, uh, uh, to describe the room in great detail, whether it's West Africa, North Africa, and so forth, some of their history, what makes that room unique. And then we dive down and actually these Muslim background believers report in their own words their story of how they came to faith, how God is at work in their community. What we don't do is provide their accurate name. We change their name. Mm-hmm. Muhammad's become Abdullah's and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> And we also uh, don't mention the name of the place, the precise location where this is happening. We simply say, in West Africa, in North Mm -hmm. Africa. By doing so, we can camouflage, we feel like, these uh, movements within the context of millions of Muslims, tens of millions, in some cases hundreds of millions of Muslims who live around them. Mm. Okay, and those uh, nine rooms in the House of Islam, they're they're reflecting sort of, Geography and culture, I would imagine, exactly. that uh, being a Muslim in, in Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim nation, would be very different to being a Muslim in Saudi Arabia. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And we wanted to do justice to the, uh, the differences across the Muslim world, so we described West Africa and the things that shape it, hmm. the things that have made it what it is, and we do the same with North Africa and so forth, each of the nine rooms. Uh, so that the readers will not uh, will not fall prey to this temptation to see Muslims as all the same. Mm. Uh, with 1.6 billion adherents, you know, Islam is an extremely diverse mm. uh, religion, and uh, many of these Muslims uh, they may agree about the Quran and about the identity of Muhammad and Allah, but other than that, they have very little in common with one another. Mm. And, um, we wanted to do justice to the diversity yeah. of the world. Well, for some of them, they regard each other as apostate. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're often at war with each other. When they're not fighting uh, mm. someone who's a non-Muslim, they're fighting someone who they say is a non-Muslim, mm. <laughs> their neighbor. Well, across these uh, nine uh, rooms, what, what were the common factors that you learnt about how uh, the gospel and church planting movements are spreading? In one of my uh, latter chapters of the book, I describe ten bridges of God 
that uh, that we're seeing him use. And um, I mean, some of these are sort of intuitive things you would expect, mm-hmm. like faith and prayer and the Word of God, Holy Spirit's activity, and faithful Christian witness. Some of these, though, are, are a little more uh, counterintuitive, things we didn't fully expect, but we clearly saw them across the Muslim world, such as uh, learning from the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. It was remarkable for us to see some breakthroughs in Muslim evangelism or Muslim discipleship that uh, took place initially in a, somewhere like uh, Indonesia. And then we saw those principles applied in somewhere like uh, Ethiopia. And we saw a response. Hmm. Or lessons that were learned in India were then applied and adapted to contexts in West Africa. And so the body of Christ, where it was having a breakthrough in one part of the world, was learning from the body of Christ. Mm. And that was a a wonderful but somewhat unexpected uh, reality. And I think this is something that is possible today in ways, Steve, that weren't possible Mm. even 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, We've got communication capabilities now to learn from one another. A couple of other... uh, uh, breakthroughs, I think, that uh, we saw tying together the ways God's at work in the Muslim world. One would be uh, communication. There's uh, always been communication between Muslims and Christians. Uh, it was on a daily basis in the opening centuries, mm. uh, Muslim period. But what we're seeing now is more effective and more abundant communication. Effective in the sense that we're learning more about contextualization, mm. we're learning how to speak the language of the people we're talking to so that they don't just hear a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. They actually understand who Jesus is and what the claims are of the gospel in their life. And the abundant side of that is coming with things like Internet, satellite television, mm. radio. Mm. It's global uh, fruit basket turnover, if you will. You know, of Muslims coming to the West mm. and West going to the Muslim world. We're an interconnected world as never before. And as a result, it's making more communication possible. Another thing that we didn't expect to find, uh, but that we clearly saw across the Muslim world, was was the role of discovery in Muslims coming to Christ. I tell people sometimes that I'm a Baptist. I grew up a Baptist. And I tell people that, you know, they say you can always tell a Baptist, but you can't tell him much. (laughs) And um, I don't know if that translates into Australia. Sure. (laughs) I have a Baptist background, too. <laughs> there you go. Well, there's something about that that I take a little pride in. What it means is, you know, we feel like mm. we do have a good handle on the truth, and we're not going to be easily dissuaded from mm. it. Muslims are like that. Muslims have this sense that uh, they have superior knowledge, superior relationship with God, and they don't want non-Muslims telling them that they're wrong, that they're going to hell, that they have a false God. But when they discover it, for themselves, it changes everything. Just like an old Baptist, you know, it grabs them, it holds them, mm. and they will die for it. And that's something I think I wasn't expecting to see so much the role of uh, self-discovery. Uh, we always think it's up to us to somehow yes. convince and persuade. Yes. But there's something about them discovering it for themselves. It may start with a dream or a vision or an answered prayer. It may start with a Jesus film showing, or it may start with uh, reading some scripture. But over time, they come become convinced that this is the truth. And when that happens, that hold that the truth has on them, that they have on the truth, is, uh, is remarkable. 
Okay, because uh, so because a lot of us probably think you know up front I've got to win an argument and yeah. and prove yeah. something, I get into a debate. <clears throat> but really, what you're saying is when you you connect with Muslim folk, um, your your goal is is to help them begin a journey of of discovery. Either mm. look, why don't you have a look at this film or. Uh, how about we read some of the stories about Jesus together and see what you think? Exactly. Uh, it, and it's not it's it's not an upfront. I'm going to win the argument because um, you can win the argument, and lose the person. But well, I've done a lot of that in my day. I've won a lot of arguments. I've learned how to defeat Muslims in arguments, mm. and it's a a great personal satisfaction to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure it adds much to the kingdom. Uh, I mean, I think we need to be educated in apologetics, and I'm not in any way uh, criticizing or lampooning apologists, lest they apologize against me. Uh, but I am saying that it's a difference between doing apologetics and doing evangelism. And one of the challenges for reaching Muslims is to find ways to enable them to discover the truth for themselves. Mm. Uh, some people have done this through discovery Bible studies where they start with non-controversial biblical stories like the, the creation accounts, the Garden of Eden, and so forth. And then by the time they get to the New Testament, these Muslims have, have discovered for themselves this is indeed the Word of God. And uh, part of that process is for them at the end of each storying session to say, uh, what would God have us do based on what we've learned? And that's been you know very effective. Uh, picking up on what Muslims have already seen, such as... Um, a Jesus film or a dream or a vision and then being able to give a reason for the hope within you. Mm. One of the tools that's come out of Indonesia that's been uh, highly effective is called Any3. Uh, anyone, anywhere, anytime. Have you seen that? Yes, and I've, I've got a copy of the book, read the book, and um, Mike Shipman. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mike, uh, Mike, uh, I helped Mike develop that and... Uh, get it written up because it's the power to me and mm. he's got a lot of nuances but that little five-step journey that mm. you go through with a muslim in which you get connected in a non-threatening way you get to a god conversation which is pretty easy to do with a muslim and then you get to lostness in which yes. he admits to you that he really has no assurance of mm. salvation he's mm. only hopeful mm. that he may end someday then you get to the gospel we want to start with the gospel and find immediately there's a wall that is put up. But by the time a Muslim tells you that he really doesn't know for sure that he'll go to heaven, mm. then you can, in essence, throw him a gospel rope and say, well, you know, I do know, not because of me, but because of what God did for me. Yes. And then the final thing is getting to a decision. And uh, I, just, I love that because it allows the Muslim to reveal to you what he believes and what he's seen. And in the process, he lets you know that he really doesn't know for sure mm. that he has that kind of relationship with God that would ensure that he'll be with God for all eternity. Mm. And, and they need a Savior. That's a common thread. Uh, if I can finish up, there's two more yes. things that uh, there were common things that we saw across the Muslim world, the ways God's at work. One of these bridges was Islam itself. This is another mm -hmm. one of those counterintuitive things. Yeah. Now, if you just see Islam as the enemy, um, then you don't look in it for the kinds of tools that God is using. And surprisingly, we found three that, that emerged within their testimonies again and again. One was uh, when Muslims read the Quran in their own language for the first time. Many of these Muslims said, you know, I realized for the first time there was no assurance of salvation there. 
And that was stunning for them because they assumed that if they did all the things the Quran mandated, that you know, they were in. They, they had eternal salvation. They think about eternity a lot, but they had only heard it in Arabic. They didn't know what it really said. So the colloquialization of the Quran into colloquial languages all over is leading many literate Muslims to read it in their heart language for the first time and to start looking for salvation because they don't find it in the Quran. Mm. The second thing they're finding in Islam is simply the example of the Prophet himself. Uh, when they look at the life of Muhammad and they compare mm. it to the life of Jesus, they see a life that uh, you know was, was a violent life, a life that was uh, a polygamist life, not just mm. four wives, but multiple lives, a life that was not very exemplary when it came to relationships with uh, with women or with girls, for that matter, you know, having mm. a child bride, all those things sort of troubled Muslims. They say, yes. there's something about this that doesn't seem right to us. And as a result, many of them, from that realization within their own religion, they're looking to uh, a Savior who, uh, who was holy, mm. who was powerful, did miracles like Jesus did, and one who, uh, uh, who alone was... Uh, with, is with God today and will be awaiting them in the judgment someday. And those are truths they get even from within Islam. The final thing they get from Islam that is drawing them to faith in Christ is simply just this chronic history of violence. Mm. Mm. It was there at the beginning, and yes. uh, you could say both Christianity and yes. Islam were born in a context of violence, mm. but Christianity took a position that Jesus modeled Yes. of turning the other cheek and, and, and not resisting one is evil, Islam took a very different turn. And as a result, it's just woven into the DNA of Islam that violence mm-hmm. is a legitimate option for a Muslim. But as a result, they've had just endemic violence yes. throughout history. And many of these movements that we've seen take place have followed on the heels of, of almost genocidal warfare. Mm-hmm. Tremendous conflicts in Algeria, in Iran, in Bangladesh, and, mm. and this goes on and on. The final thing I would say that we've seen is a common thread, and this is a challenge for us as missionaries. Yeah. <clears throat> the common thread is indigenization. Mm-hmm. I mean, they own the faith mm-hmm. as their own, and they don't see it as an extension of colonial power or an extension mm-hmm. of the West, uh, but they see it as theirs yeah. because love them and, and, and the scriptures in their language and they're spreading the gospel themselves among their own people. That's had a powerful, powerful uh, uh, component uh, that God has used in these uh, these movements across the Muslim world. Mm. And David, um, once as you've identified those common things and people work through the book uh, and they see the principles, the lessons... Uh, what's what's the next step for somebody who says, well, I, I want to do something with what I'm learning here in this book? What what do you suggest? Well, I, I, without wanting to be too self-serving, the first thing is that you do need to get the book. You need to yes, take a look at definitely. it. Because I'm convinced that our readers will see things in these stories and hear things in these stories that go beyond anything I could tell them. Hmm. Uh, one thing I tried to do in this book was let the Muslim background believers speak for themselves. Mm. And one of the reasons being that I can't claim to be an expert on what God's doing. I, I'm an observer. Mm. I'm a, hopefully a faithful uh, recorder of what God's doing. I draw some conclusions, but they're by no means exhaustive. And so I invite readers 
to learn for themselves and really to begin a process of learning. Uh, I've said to people before that if the body of Christ only knew what the body of Christ knows, Mm. we'd know all we need to know to do the work of Christ in the world. And what I mean by that is that there may be a breakthrough taking place right now in, say, North India or in Afghanistan or in West Africa Mm. that we can learn from. And from the lessons that we learn there, we can apply it in our own community, whether it's in Australia or America or Europe. Uh, we need to be learning from the body of Christ wherever the body of Christ is learning something about uh, bringing Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ. So that's that's one of the basic lessons is that we yeah. would take a posture of learning. Of course, I give some I give five specific practical steps mm-hmm. in the, the last chapter of the book that I invite Muslim, uh, people who want to reach Muslims to, to take. And the first one is always to pray. Prayer is not a last resort. It's a first step. Because prayer connects us with God and gives us his perspective, gives us his heart. I've been stunned at how many Christians I've met through the years whose fear of Muslims has led them to a hatred of Muslims. Mm. And, you know, as the Bible says, perfect love casts out all fear. You Mm. cannot be fearful and hateful and really be aligned with what God desires. So prayer is a great beginning. Uh, A second thing I encourage them to do is to after reading the book, to identify these ministries that are effective and to contribute to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muslims won't pay for their own evangelization. Yeah. Uh, that takes us. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I boldly encourage uh, anyone out there who wants to see more Muslims come to Christ to identify those ministries that, that we've, uh, we've been able to show you uh, through the testimonies of the Muslim background believers mm-hmm. themselves and support those ministries. And a third thing is to join those ministries. Go to Muslims. I think uh, we've got to realize this is not spontaneously happening. It's happening because people have sacrificially gone to Muslims. In some cases, uh, even generations of uh, faithful witnesses who have not seen what we're seeing today, but they saw it from afar, and they they believed it, so they pursued it, just as it says in Hebrews 11.13. They could see it from afar, and even though they died in their faith, they continued to lean toward what was going to come. And a lot of us today, what we're seeing today is a result of those faithful mm-hmm. witnesses who went before us. A fourth thing that we can do that's related to this, Steve, is that we can, uh, we can be involved in ministries to Muslims in our own communities today. Yes. Uh, Islam, the Muslim world, has been so racked by violence, mm-hmm. by unemployment, uh, by conflicts, that we're seeing Muslim immigrants uh, by the millions streaming out of the Muslim world into Africa, into Asia, into Europe, into the Americas. And the temptation for many Christians is to tiptoe around them, to give them space, stay away from them, to be afraid of them, to retreat to the suburbs or someplace where we don't find them. But we need to be engaging these, these Muslims who are coming to our countries because many of them are coming Because they have experienced hardships overseas. They've seen the violence. They are ripe to say, we're looking for something different. Yes. We're looking for some way that is is different from what we've experienced. And I suppose that leads to the the final thing that we can do in uh, practical steps in relation to to Muslims is we can share the gospel with them. Uh, I encourage uh, people who hear this, people who read the book, to learn effective ways to be fishermen among uh, Muslims. 
You know, Jesus said that if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And if you've ever done any fishing, you know it's not something that is uh, is natural and easy. It's something that, that you learn. You learn, uh, you know, what are the fish uh, responding to? What time of day? How deep do you set the lure? All those kinds of things that good fishermen just uh, get better at over time. And we sometimes want it to magically happen. We think if we just say the magic formula, uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life, or, or John three sixteen, that they're going to just the fish will jump into the boat. It just doesn't happen that way. We need to be learning the ways that the body of Christ is learning to see Muslims come to faith. Some of those lessons have been uh, hard lessons to learn. Many people have laid down their lives over the years learning faithfully taking the gospel of Muslims until they saw a breakthrough. When they saw a breakthrough, we, we really owe it to them mm. to, to listen to those lessons, to listen to those stories, and then to try to take the gospel effectively to Muslims in our own community. Mm. Excellent. Well, there's some very practical, concrete things people can do. And uh, I was just reflecting on our own experience here in, um, in Melbourne, uh, you know, I'm part of my wife Michelle has a, a ministry uh, in helping migrants with English as a second language. Great. We're all the time meeting folk uh, from Iran. And who would have thought that the fruit of the Islamic Revolution in, I think it was 1979, is a whole generation that wants nothing to do with radical Islam? And uh, from there's, our, a, there's a responsiveness. Yeah. Um, you know, the greatest evangelist in the Iranian world was the Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> yes. yes, he showed them. He showed them uh, what Islam was really about, what it was like. As a result, uh, hundreds of thousands mm. seem to be voting with their feet and walking away from Islam. So, ordinary believers, they 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 do need to um, read the book, and you'd, I imagine you'd recommend too the the book on the the camel method. Uh, sure. that you've helped get published and you've edited. Uh, there are some, but there are some simple approaches. You don't have to be able to read the Quran in Arabic. You don't have to have... You, exactly. you, can, you can offer friendship and you can offer to sit, let's read the Bible together. Let's read some stories, Jesus' life, help them self-discover. And then as you go, you need to continue to learn about, well, how do we relate to this person in, in a culturally sensitive way? Mm. And what I like about your book is wherever that, that person with a Muslim background is from, you have a chapter, I would imagine, on each of those <laughs> um, nine rooms that they can go to and learn about. Well, I had something that happened just uh, just yesterday, Steve. I'm going to see here it is. I got an email from a missionary who was actually one of the fellows who helped me in some of my interviews when I was in Africa. He's a Swiss missionary, and that's as far as I'll go. He said I can, I can use that reference to him. Uh, can I share this with yes, you? Yes, it'll be good. He said, uh, this was just uh, post-dated yesterday. It's an email. Dear David, I have to share this with you. He said, I just flew back from Cameroon to Addis, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. He said, while I was sitting in the plane... I was reading your new book. I was just in the chapter about Iran when suddenly a young man who had changed his seat sat in the next row. He glanced over to me when I was on that page where the Iran map shows. When he noticed that I was reading about Iran, he started to talk with me and let me know that he was 
am Iranian. Now, it's the first time in 20 plus years in Africa that I've ever met an Iranian. We then started uh, to talk, <clears throat> and he said that he was tired of violent Islam and that he had started to think about Jesus and the love of God since three months earlier. I then gave him your book for him to read how many Iranians are currently following Jesus and why. I then showed him the Iranian clip from More Than Dreams, a little video site on the Internet. He said he was greatly impressed. I then shared the gospel with him, and shortly before our landing in Addis, he gave his life to Jesus. Wow. We prayed right there in the Ethiopian airplane, uh, in the Ethiopian airline airplane. He thanked me many times and was so happy to finally have met our God of love through wow. Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. And he says, have you ever thought that your book could be used as an evangelistic tool? <laughs> and I thought, you know, actually I did. When we yeah. wrote this, we intentionally didn't try to bash Islam or mm. try to... Uh, you know, do things that were offensive to Muslims. We we wanted to let them speak for themselves. But we were hoping that many Muslims that we're encountering across the Muslim world who are considering Jesus mm. would read in this and see that they're not alone. Yes. But that they're, in fact, a part of, uh, of dreams and visions and answered prayers and questions that are now saturating the Muslim world. And that through reading this, they would be encouraged to have boldness and faith to step up and say, I too want to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm.